You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast about the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 24, 1980s Urban Cowboy, with John Travolta, Deborah Winger, A Mechanical Bull, and Scott Glenn's Ball Sweat. Martin, yes, you can't expect a man like me to be faithful to any woman. Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing? Doing well, sir. You got your cowboy hat on? <laughs> I wish I had one. Yeah, neither. That's the craziest thing is we both live in Texas and neither one of us own a cowboy hat. I'm pretty sure Carrie owns one, but I just, I could never pull it off. I do want to get some like nicer, just cowboy boots that I could like wear with jeans, like not to go whole hog into the cowboy look, but they look pretty cool with jeans. Yeah. I feel like like I, some, it's almost like boot cut. I could never mean? do it. Like I just, I couldn't pull it off. I know that about myself and I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable admitting that. But why are we here today, Martin? Here to talk about James Bridges. Yeah. 1980s urban cowboy, which is. You know, it is going to be the centerpiece movie of this episode, but this is more or less an excuse to dive into the au revoir, if you will, of Bridges, uh, which for some brief backstory, you know, we had the first season that we recorded. Uh, it was the three of us, me, you and Cody, and then Cody moved and we were kind of stuck uh, a little bit of being like we wanted to continue the podcast, but we weren't really sure what direction we wanted to take it in. And then just by chance, I saw one of James Bridges movies, Mike's murder for the first time on Cinephobe, which is a clandestine streaming service. I don't even want to call it a streaming service. It's more or less almost like a a pirated uh, online film channel that popped up during COVID And it doesn't really exist anymore. It's just been down, quote unquote, for maintenance for months (laughs) now. But I saw Mike's murder uh, one night, was totally enraptured by it, had never seen a James Bridges movie before, and then dove down a rabbit hole and started consuming everything I could find that had his name on it. And then the uh, proverbial light bulb went off in my head where I went, this is it. This is what secret, Secret Handshake should be from here on out, is that we pinpoint filmmakers who are new to us or guys that we really love who we want to explore more in depth and fall down rabbit holes with them and kind of challenge each other to really do some homework on them and dig deep and bridges you know i never knew that he made 
uh, urban cowboy. Like I watched Mike's murder and then did his IMDb only made uh, eight movies and urban cowboy was the one that stood out to me because it's the most popular one. So by default, that became the centerpiece movie of this episode. How uh, would you define your relationship to Bridges if you had one at all? Had you seen any of these movies before? I had just seen China Syndrome. Okay. I, I knew of Urban Cowboy. I'm a Travolta fan. I think I had a weird just opinion of it, having not seen it, of, oh, that's the the mechanical bull movie. Right. And I, in a weird way, I think my brain conflated that with Staying Alive, the sequel um, to Cider Night Fever, directed by Stallone, which is very weird and very, like, bad. It, yeah, arch and bad. Um <laughs> to put it plainly. Yeah, it's it's a shit movie. And I think I had written off Urban Cowboy. Um, I had never heard the name James Richard before. Like, it was one of those, you know, tours that is kind of flew under the radar, I think, in terms of, like, the kind of things you and I watch, especially because I, you and I both are into serious genre stuff. We, we, I think any kind of genre person that comes around, like, we're usually... One of us has probably heard of it. James Bridge is like, I had no knowledge of it. I sounded too pretentious. I apologize. But, you know, we, I'd never heard of him. And I was like, oh, but I've seen, I've seen China Syndrome and I've heard of Urban Cowboy and I knew of, um, like, Bright Likes Big City. Um, I'd never, I think I'd heard of Perfect, but it kind of was a film that it's not talked about a lot today at all, especially for two, like, superstars like Jamie Lee Curtis and, and Travolta. Um, but I was, I was interested to kind of to dive into it as just a complete carte blanche of just like, I don't know anything about this guy. I saw Mike's murder. You had the the copy we watched on your birthday. We were all talking and kind of hanging out. So I don't count that as like a viewing. Sure. And we watch it again, obviously before the podcast, which had a, a, a guy. I should have played perfect instead. I mean, perfect. I hadn't seen it at that point. I think I actually watched perfect for the first time the day after my birthday last year. It's interesting, like, what we've kind of come across, I think, doing the second season is, um, for instance, doing someone like, you know, Jeffrey O'Brow and Stephen Carpenter is that you can kind of take a, a tourist lens to all kinds of filmmakers, you know, and this is an opportunity for us to look at people like them and find a way in there, I think, for you to watch Bedecker, a lot of that for the first sure. time. And now, obviously, for me, like, except for one film, I watched eight films, seven films out of eight that were all new to me. Right. And like they were all quality and all things that I could take quite a bit from. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, I just I had no real I had no real base knowledge of bridges at all going in. So uh, for those who are not aware, James Bridges made eight movies. Uh, he was originally a playwright who moved from Arkansas roughly around uh, the age of nineteen. Kind of had the classic. You know, small town boy moves to the big city, like just with uh, hopes and dreams of wanting to be a director. Was it um, New York? It was New York. What? No, went to L.A. Oh, went to like, literally, okay. yeah. Um, which w- one of the movies that we'll get into, uh, September thirtieth, nineteen fifty-five, is more or less like his autobiography. It's about his uh, both impetus and uh, journey to to moving to Hollywood uh, from Arkansas. But he moves uh, from Arkansas to Los Angeles, becomes a playwright, uh, first pursues a career as an actor. Um, And because he was very uh, boyishly good looking, 
um, had kind of a baby face. He was cast in a bunch of, uh, let's say, beach blanket or like teen rebel type pictures that were big because this is the the 50s now. He, he leaves right around 1955, 1956 uh, for Los Angeles. Um, and then he, he got a couple roles there. There's one significant one called Johnny trouble, I believe from 1957, but that's where he meets his life partner or who would become his life partner and, and collaborator for the rest of his career. Jack Larson, who for most people was Jimmy Olsen on the adventures of Superman, like the uh, original televised serial, the George Reeves or before that. Um, I'd have to look it up, so I'm not entirely sure, but he does play, I think it's probably the serial because George I think it's the, the serial. 50s. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but then he begins writing and directing plays, uh, with Larson and then more or less starts uh, putting together a family of creatives, uh, that work with him that include like John Houseman, Colin Wilcox, uh, Jack Bender, uh, John Ritter stars in one of his uh, earliest plays. And then he's um, directing a play, I believe, called The Days of Dancing. And he's spotted by a producer named Norman Lloyd, who works for Alfred Hitchcock. And Alfred Hitchcock presents in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. And that's how he more or less gets his foot in the door of being a writer for uh, television and cinema is that he starts writing for the, the Alfred Hitchcock series there. He writes one episode in particular called The Jar, which was pretty famous. And then uh, the big moment in his career is that he was handpicked by Tennessee Williams to stage the 25th anniversary... Uh, Streetcar Named Desire. Streetcar Named Desire, which starred John Voight and Faye Dunaway. <sighs> And that he counts as one of the worst <laughs> experiences of his professional career. Because, I mean, it's John Voight and Faye Dunaway. So they're two notoriously difficult personalities to manage on set to begin with. But apparently, uh, in every interview you ever read from him uh, talking about uh, this production, he just says they were at their each other's throats the entire time. Like, just... Could not work with each other. Way too difficult. And he, what sounded like a dream more or less became a nightmare, to put it in kind of cliched terms. And then Larson writes a play in the late 60s, and they go to London with it. And it's called Cherry, Larry, Sandy, Doris, Gene, and Paul. And it stars John Ritter and Jack Bender. It becomes a huge hit. Not a huge hit. That's probably over-exaggerating. But it becomes a hit in London. Gets a whole bunch of uh, critical acclaim because at the time, even though he was writing for television and everything, he was trying to break in and make movies. But like every time he would pitch a project, they would basically say, well, you've never directed anything. You're not a director. You're a writer. We can't trust you with this much money to make a movie because he had also written some screenplays, including um, Colossus, the Forbin project, which if you've never seen that, is a very, very strange uh, bit of sci-fi from the early 70s. But they're in London. <clears throat> they're making uh, this play. And he's even planning on basically doing guerrilla style, like a filming of this, this play for his first feature. And he's shooting in 16 millimeter. They're doing like exteriors in London with the 
idea that they'll get back to the States, take the same cast that they're working with on stage and just make the film version of it on like some very cheap sound stages, shoot it in 16 millimeter. And there he has a, a, a feature more or less to show producers that he uh, can make a movie. Well, John Houseman, who became his mentor and is one of the reasons that uh, Norman Lloyd, the Hitchcock producer, uh, even spotted him in the first place because in one of his earliest productions, Houseman's wife was in it and Lloyd was like a friend of their families. And he came to one of the stagings and was like, oh shit, this guy can actually write. Like I should recruit him for the television show. Well, Houseman took all of the great reviews that they were getting in London and sent them on to the National General uh, Film Company, which was uh, run by Robert Wise, who made, obviously, West Side Story, among many, many other great movies. And then that was the flashpoint, let's say, that led to his film career, because then National General bankrolls The Baby Maker, which is uh, James Bridges' first feature, which features uh, Barbara Hershey in just an absolutely terrific role as a hippie girl who is recruited to be a surrogate mother for an uptight square family, or square couple, I should say, one of which is played by Colin Wilcox, his uh, regular stage collaborator. This movie is so fucking good that it's hard to kind of even put it at words. It's such a gentle, moving little melodrama that I was totally blown away by. And it was the last of his movies that I came to. I almost worked in borderline like reverse order going all the way back to the beginning. But like, I, I was totally floored by this the first time watching it the other day. I went to, I actually went the opposite, mostly starting at the beginning and working my way up to the last film. Um, but I did start Paper Chase. I knew about that. I'd never seen it. And I was kind of hungry to watch that. But then I watched um, Baby Maker right after that. This film really fucked me up um, in a good way. Like I, I feel like you and I are similar. I mean, we watch a lot of movies, and and it's rare where I have a really just like, for me specifically, I have it's rare where I have a really emotional experience anymore. And like the last fifteen minutes of this were like some of the most heart wrenching stuff I've seen in a long time, because it's it you know the, again this this story where she is and not just a surrogate mother but straight up like fucks the husband not like they implanted an embryo inside of her it's like no like she becomes part of their family she lives with them like it's kind of this mixing of cultures of you know she's this very free spirit they like you said they're very square but they all kind of in a great way change one another like she affects them they affect her it's super, I texted you something along the lines of it being super reminiscent of Clint Eastwood's Breezy with Kay Lenz, which is a very similar uh, storyline because that's Kay Lenz and not Sterling. Uh, it's, it's William uh, Holden. It's Holden, yeah. Yeah, where William Holden is kind of this aging playboy singles, like permanent bachelor, let's say, who, who's very rich and, and lives the square lifestyle of like the late 60s, early 70s. Mm -hmm. The hippies are kind of on the fringes. Like he has, to put it in, I guess, modern terms, kind of a Rick Dalton vibe to him of like he notices the hippies from afar, isn't 
totally bothered by them, but it still kind of looks at them with disdain. He doesn't have the full-on venom that Dalton has for fucking hippies. But, like, Kay Lenz enters his life uh, rather serendipitously, and they strike up an unlikely romance. And it's... If you've never seen Breezy, this comes after The Baby Maker. It's 1973, I believe. It's like the second or third movie that Eastwood directed. It's incredible. And it's one of the great examples when people just talk about Clint in terms of like tough guy movies and Dirty Harry and Westerns and stuff is like Clint always had this rather curious softer side, let's say to him, to where he was into romance. He was, he, he was a lover of love, let's say. And like that you, when like, I remember when Bridges of Madison County came out and everybody was totally taken aback by the, the fact that Clint would want to direct that movie. And it was like, let alone star in it, you know, but it was like, it's been there the whole time since the seventies. Like if you, if you've seen breezy once you realize that like Clint has always been intrigued by the way that men and women interact and, and engage in, uh, let's say, romantic relationships beyond Play Misty for me, which <laughs> is the the tonal opposite, we'll say, of, of Breezy. Yeah. But Baby Maker is in the same kind of vein because it, it presents you with uh, this square couple, this hippie girl, and they do, to your point, they, they create a very odd uh, extended family together. But the fucking, that was the part that really took me back. And honestly, that seems to be the part that James Bridges is the most intrigued by here because it's almost told not exclusively from Colin Wilcox's character's performance as, as the woman, the the wife in this uh, case who cannot, you know, give birth to a child or, or, become pregnant because she had a miscarriage. She had a hysterectomy and now she's incapable of bearing children. But like you watch from her perspective of like, how would you feel if this beautiful woman from this counterculture that you barely understand? And honestly, they kind of openly mock at certain points, the same way that Holden sort of does in uh, breezy what if she just showed up at your doorstep and was like, that's the key to you having the thing you want most in this world, but she has to fuck your husband. Like that's pretty wrenching melodramatic stuff. And it's, what's great is it's never, it's never hit. It doesn't hit you over the head as an audience member that she, there's moments where she's like, you know, okay, I'm a little bit jealous, but most of it is done through looks. Like it's just great editing and great directing where it's, it's just Colin Wilcox. Again, we talked about, I think we were talking about earlier, like just these great cutaways of you see Barbara Hershey just being like gorgeous and sexy and, and just this like very desirable woman, you know, of even when she, even when she's pregnant, it's just like, she's so, she glows in this movie and Colin Wilcox is a very beautiful woman as well, but you see the kind of what have I gotten myself into at moments? Like I want this baby, and she at the same time also cares for Barbara Hirsch's character kind of as a, a daughter because there's there's an age difference too. Like they're in their like late thirties, it, it seems like she's twenty two, so they're they're fifteen years apart. I think they're supposed to be easily easily. You know, like they're 
she's almost young enough to be like their daughter. It's almost like a, a monkey's paw of a sociological experiment. You yeah. know, that you're you're witnessing in real time. Meanwhile, uh, Barbara Hershey's character is in this relationship with Scott Glenn. With Tad. Who <laughs> is just... He's almost like a hippie stereotype to a certain degree. Like he makes like leather goods. He's always appears unwashed. He doesn't have like any kind of semblance of a normal job. He's always sort of lusting after women. And they're in what seems to be hinted at as an, and very free love kind of open relationship. Well, she says we're, we're open. Yeah. We're open yeah. to it. And that's kind of what works, but it's, it's this real beautiful beginning because it, it starts Bridges fascination uh, with young people and subcultures and how they more or less both manage and maintain their own identities while having them challenged and, and finding out their place both in a subculture and a culture that they don't uh, necessarily understand as well that they enter. And Barbara Hershey in this movie is just absolutely tremendous. It's like, amazing. Because it's all about this woman because she has this boyfriend on one side mocking these squares that, that are impregnating her and being like, Oh, you want to be a part of this? You want to do this? And also like there's a period there where she's living with them and he's allowed to drop by. He's allowed to, to, to spend time with them. And then that's where a, another kind of point of conflict comes is that they're like, you got to go. Like you're interfering with this. Well, look, she, she, she's living with him. Right. And they come pick her up. Right. Because she's, and she, and, and it, off of that, though, what I really like about this film and everything, all, all eight films of his, is there's a whole lot of empathy um, in his films that, like, especially, in, I mean, starting off and well, there's Man, no bad people. There's or very rarely bad people. There's there's often people on opposite sides of a cultural like rift um, in a lot of his films. It feels like right of and in institutions and and how do you keep your identity when there's an institution involved? Like, do you give yourself over to it? Do you sell out? I think it's kind of a theme right in a lot of his stuff and in all the way back to Baby Maker. Even to Tad, even to this guy who's kind of a piece of shit, um, it's fair to him in moments too. Where, hey man, like he didn't ask for this, you know. Like he, and it's not like he's getting any money out of this. It's like he's been put in almost this like kind of Jesus way. He's like Joseph, where it's like, oh, I guess I'm the father now, right? You know, and he, and I, I think it's just a subtly kind of just an analogy in the film. But everyone is handled very fairly, um, and it just. If you like the situation is the enemy, if there's an enemy in this film, it's we put ourselves here and he kind of as a writer and as a director is like, if I shovel these people together and here's the choice they make, what happens? And that's the movie. Well, he's you fascinated know? by the idea of expectations. Mm. Like what? Yes. In Barbara yes. Hershey's case, like uh, her character's case, it's like almost like what do my friends, the, these people who engage in, in uh, anti-war protests and go to these almost Warhol-esque uh, screenings of these like avant-garde art films and engage in free love and uh, do drugs, everything. Because that's one of the other things, one of the funnier lines in, in uh, let's say, the screening process when she first meets uh, this couple is that 
they ask her like, Oh, do you do any drugs or whatever? And she's like, yeah, no. Do you do acid? No. A little peyote. But like no acid, and then you but you still and they're see like the weed, and she starts laughing because they like totally don't. Yeah, they they say weed, and she or do, I think it's put like, do you smoke grass? And she's like, <laughs> and like kind of laughs at them, almost like that's not a drug. What yeah. the fuck are you like, talking? And also, about? duh. <laughs> yeah, like look at me. But like, uh, it's amazing that she is stuck between the expectations of the people now who are paying her. To your point about like selling out. And then the expectations of this subculture that she's committed herself and part of her identity to, let's say, um, and how she navigates that. And it's just a wonderfully gentle, humane little film that you watch and you go, oh, yeah, this guy's got something like it's he's totally born to kind of make these sort of dramas. You texted me when I was watching this. I said I was really enjoying it. And you're like, what a nice little new Hollywood character piece. And. Absolutely. I think I texted back. It feels like a Raffleson film. It feels like a very like five easy pieces. Well, I think it was released. It, there's a book that is the main piece of research for this episode uh, that a critic uh, named Peter Tonget wrote uh, just called the, the films of James, James Bridges. And he notes that I believe the baby maker and five easy pieces released within weeks of one another oh, makes a lot like, of sense. I believe that five easy pieces, uh, it's premiered 69. In, I thought, but I think it would, it wasn't released until 70. Okay. Though. But like, I think it was released in September of 1970 and baby makers, October of 1970. But yeah, it totally fits into that. What was the name of that? That small studio that was working with Rafelson and stuff. BBS. Yes. BBS. I believe. Yeah. Like, if you had this as part of that BBS Criterion set, it would totally fit with, like, that Jack Nicholson basketball drama that he made. What was it called? Drive, he said, too. Um, and then you have The King of Marvin Gardens. Scarecrow um, part of that? Scarecrow is not a part of that, but is in the same yeah, okay. vein as this. Uh, a little more severe than this, let's say, especially by the end of Scarecrow. <laughs> but, like... Uh, what was the other one? But yeah, Raffleson is like a great comparison point because it has the same kind of uh, jangly pace to it. Although his scripts, Bridges scripts, um, that Larson also heavily uh, took a, let's say, anonymous co-writing credit on. He actually wouldn't take a credit until uh, 1984 with Mike's murder. Uh, but he was very much working as like a dialogue supervisor and the the sounding board for Bridges during the, the pre-production kind of process and pounding these things out. Bridges' scripts are so in like kind of hindsight, like perfectly structured. Like yep. he hits every beat. And by the time you get to the end, you go, Oh yeah, that's the only way this, this story could have ended. I was watching it. And again, you know, I'm, we both screenwrite, but I was spending a lot of time screenwriting and I, I was more impressed as a director, but also, but like as a screenwriter, I'm like, wow, this guy is, it is like structurally, like there's no fat. Every film he makes is just like so tuned in. Um, just, really, really nice. And again, like you said, like it, it, it has a, a great sense of inevitability, right? You know, but it also is surprising. Like there's, there, there are turns, twists and turns in urban cowboy that are very surprising. But once you pass the midpoint, it really goes like, Oh, this actually makes sense. It's just like, there's less surprise, but it's more like, this is, 
the situation they're in. Yeah, it ends up exactly where you think it's going to. Right. But in Sissy. But in a great way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But let's move on to uh, The Paper Chase, which is 1972. Three. 1973. Yeah. Um, which, to me, is the movie that acts as the best comparison point for, a let's say, a modern counterpart, which, to me... Is Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. Um, Bridges is almost like proto-Sorkin, particularly with The Paper Chase, because The Paper Chase is all about smart white guys going to Harvard Law and trying to be the smartest guy in the room and trying to pull off something that like 99.9% of the population can't do, which is graduate with a degree from Harvard fucking law. And Bridges' mentor, John Houseman, is the great teacher of contract law like that kingsfield <laughs> yeah kingsfield professor kingsfield but i mean to me like when you watch this movie like this is this movie gave birth to aaron sorkin out of a giant nerd egg like that's what this is because you, you they're almost you can draw we were talking while we were just watching mike's murder together you can draw a straight line between this and something like the social network yes and um, I, again, I had never seen Paper Chase before, and this was the first I watched of this binge um, of his films. I loved this movie. Um, I did not. It, it's, it's interesting, and I, I think that the reason it connected with me was just, was just personal shit, because when I was in grad school, I had a professor that I had a very, I'd say, obs- like, I was obsessed with his work. I looked up to him and literally set me to therapy. Like my relationship with him sent me to therapy and it was his complete obliviousness to his effect on not just me, but other students. And I, my therapist is like, Oh yeah, don't worry. You're not the first person here. Just like the taxing like nature of your relationship or like the pressure that you're put the under pressure. He was also in a dude, like I was watching and I was like, Oh my God, this is what I experienced was cause like Kingsfield is like a demanding tyrant. So to start off in a very similar way, um, Timothy Bottoms' character has read all the work of a lot of the work of Kingsfield before he even gets to Harvard Law. Like he's obviously respected in the field of law. Um, in a similar way, I was reading the work of my who became my professor um, on some work I did in college, and so I said, like, "Oh, like when I actually got in, I just I, I inflated him into this like guru, you know, and I." you know, he, he got in my head. I don't, I mean, I think I let him in my head. And so watching this film, I just felt it was very connected to my experience. And my biggest fear is being chastised by a male authority figure. And so this movie is very similar to whiplash where it's like that, that weird, another great comparison point for paper chase very much. And I, and I love whiplash and I don't want to watch it again because it stresses the fuck out of me. But that kind of relationship where you have a love, I just say love hate to make it simple with with a male teacher where you think they're the greatest thing on the planet, but also like you're a son of a fucking bitch. And sometimes it's not even they did anything. It's like the fact that you let them in into your head. And um, I think this film, and then he it comes up in later films of his as well of um, the you know when you're in an intellectual space like this, the opportunities for just people to be absolutely horrible um, to one another. I think the way that the students alone, it's, it's what's interesting is you have, you know, Kingsfield Hausman is this like tyrant, but he's not, but he's in the film probably 25 minutes. I mean, he's on it. A, he's in it a lot, but like a lot of it's them reacting 
to and preparing to be in class with him. Well, and you pointed out that Houseman would occupy this space in Bridges movies and two of his features is that he kind of does the same thing in Bright Lights Big City with the publishing company. Yes. Because he becomes the he's the overlord uh, that everybody kind of cowers to at, at is it Gotham is the yeah, name Gotham, the, yeah Gotham yeah Gotham magazine is yeah. the name of the the uh, publication that Michael J Fox worked for in that movie but he's the one that they're always like oh he's coming around and you, and, you know straighten your desk get ready to be inspected but like yeah uh, Houseman in this movie is tremendous he won an Academy Award for <laughs> he it. did. And then um, return for the TV show. Yeah, and they made the whole TV show around him. Although Bridges apparently only wrote the pilot for it and then also another episode because the show was flailing at one point and Houseman like asked him as a friend to come in and like yeah. try and help write the ship a little bit. But it's another parallel between Bridges and Sorkin there is that, you know, kind of like the American president. Uh, becoming more or less the, West the big stream, yeah, the big screen like pilot for the West Wing. Like the Paper Chase was literally the big screen pilot for a television series that would take its name as well. But uh, this also begins one of Bridges' greatest collaborations with that the fucking arguably most gifted cinematographer of all time, Gordon Willis, shoots. <sighs> Half of his filmography from this point forward. This movie is so gorgeous. Like it also, I love um, the way that it. It's like a less. It's a the not comedic version of Animal House, where it's a similar music of like the pomp and circumstance of being in school on a college campus, on a college campus, being college men. Yeah, it's yeah. very very much that, but it has the kind of bump 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 kind of feel. You well, know? It reminded me of that again to. Not keep going back to Sorkin, but it, it reminded me of that scene with the Winklevoss twins yes. where they're talking to the dean and they, he turns down their, uh, they want to file the petition against Mark Zuckerberg uh, for stealing their idea. And he literally simply goes, we are men of Harvard. We do not file petitions. We do not do this. This is not how we handle disputes. Like that's the whole fucking tone of this movie. It's It's so... I love also like Timothy Bottoms. I just always like him. Um, like, and he's really good in this movie. I, oh, I should amazing. put it out there that like, this is probably, it's not my least favorite bright lights. Big city is my least, least favorite James Bridges movie because I just don't think that movie works at all. Um, but I just, I had trouble getting into this because like, and perhaps it's, it's being inundated with all of the, the Sorkin, uh, filmography that came later. Yeah. But like this deals with the same thing. It's, it's all about the noble pursuit of like the, the smart white man. And like, I don't care that much. Like I've seen this story a million times. And unfortunately I just didn't see the prototype before I saw all of the, the things that came afterwards, you know, it was actually the same point you made when we were talking about the newest scream film where it was like, we were, I was kind of worn out. It's like, because we've watched everything in between. Sure. You know, it, we've watched all the references, all the films that have happened since. And so it's like, we're in this world 24 seven and this is what you give us. It's, it's good, but it's like that same kind of thing is like, well, that's it. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I mean, to uh, his credit, like Bridges was nominated for best screenplay houseman one. There was another nomination that's slipping my mind at the moment, but like this movie did 
very, very well and open the doors for him to do other stuff. But it wouldn't be for four more years until he makes his next feature, which is his most personal movie, September 30th, 1955, which is... Wow. I mean, Chef's this is chef's so kiss. fucking good, man. Like, he basically takes his autobiography and turns it into a Tennessee Williams, like, hothouse play complete with Susan Tyrell. I, I oh, And man. Gordon Willis, again, shooting it and shooting Arkansas and shooting all this Southern Gothic kind of small town architecture and really getting you inside. But again... This is the only movie of his that I think you can't pinpoint a subculture per se. Well, you have to almost like think about it in the abstract, but this is very much about being an outsider in a town that expects you to behave as a man a certain way and being totally wrapped up in like, the arts, movies, and wanting to do something bigger with your life and just kind of run for the horizon because nothing in this small Arkansas town can really hold you or live up to what you think you're capable of. Yeah, um, I loved this, man. It's so fucking good. You told me ahead of time, I think you said like specifically, like I think you're going to love this one in particular. And because it has that very like, I mean, American Graffiti is top five for me. And so anything that is like a slice of life, even though it is, like you said, it's like Tennessee Williams, somewhat um, arch version of his life. It's still like you get to live with these characters for like a day, you know, and it, it cuts, it jumps forward in time at the end, but you get to spend time with them. Um, but I, if you're going to spend time with characters too, I mean, like Richard Thomas, uh, who is in the Waltons yeah, at the same time, I, I so. believe, or roughly the same era, let's say, He's playing the James Bridges stand-in, Jimmy L, uh, or Jimmy J, I'm sorry, which is a play on uh, Bridges' real-life nickname that he had growing up. He Everybody, when he was growing up in Arkansas, called him Jim Mac. There you and go. he even went to the University of Central Arkansas on a twirling scholarship. That's what he did. He was in band. He was the guy so who he was twirls. around it all. So when you see that opening shot of the girl twirling in front of the camera, that's literally him signaling being like, this is about me. Just so you know. Oh, I love it. There's something like you said about subcultures. Cause that is a thing that is very common in, in pretty much all of his films, even though there's not a quote unquote subculture for him, this was his life. For us, though, he throws you into his sense of place and time and the things you would do uh, at being as Arkansas State Technical College, I think, is in right. the film, right? And it has the feel of, like, this is what it was like to live at that time. So I think, regardless of the subculture idea, he was so good at putting you in a place and that the, the, the pacing of this film was very different than the other film because... I think everything else takes place over a much more of amount of time. Sure. You know, this is again, is that slice of life. Um, well, I mean, and we should specify that this is about the day after James Dean died. It's all about them hearing the radio broadcast and how it, the, the tragic news more or less infects this small group of friends, which includes uh, not only Richard Thomas as our main character, but you have Dennis Quaid uh, as like the big, strapping jock uh, asshole kind of asshole 
go figure. Tom Hulse. And Tom Hulse, uh, pre-Amadeus. And then also Dennis Christopher shows up. Lisa Blount yep. plays his like best friend, Billie Jean, from the other side of the tracks, who uh, is saddled with being the daughter of a mm, promiscuous mother in Susan Tyrell. And Susan Tyrell is in... Now I'm going to say this, and I don't think she has any other mode, but like Susan Tyrell is full Susan Tyrell in this fucking movie. Like totally going like for the back seats, you know? It's funny. I think if there's one actor or actress that represents our secret handshake that comes up a lot it might be susan tyrell because i had no real experience with her before we met but she comes up quite a bit i'm thinking of like this fat city uh butcher maker nightmare maker where she is just she doesn't give anything less than 100 percent. this i think might my favorite performance of hers though i love her it's always going to be night warning for me but she's great in this this i think I don't think you get enough Susan Tyrell in this. She's she's too much of a supporting player. When she's crazier, a lot crazier in Night Warning. This one had... (laughs) We should be clear, though. Her performance in in Night Warning is much crazier than most things that ever existed. (laughs) On the planet. In in the the timeline (laughs) of recorded history, there's Susan Tyrell in Night Warning, and then maybe there's Hitler somewhere else. (laughs) She's so, I love her playing this, like, again, like like you said, Tennessee Williams matriarch, who obviously was an old Southern belle, who's still fucking around, who's still sleeping with many different men, trying to get things for she and her daughter. I think what I really like about this film, like you said, being an outsider, because, like, he's from outside of town, but he's in in college there, and and Billie Jean is definitely the definition of a townie, you know, and... She's the girl from the other side of the tracks. Other side of the tracks, and... It's something that I really connected with in this film was times in my life growing up in a small town in Indiana before before streaming, before um, even before DVD, that to be a movie fan was sometimes kind of, you know, this kind of a lonely thing to be when your friends were sure. like the way they related to film versus the way you related to film. And it, I don't think I ever an experience like an actor dying that it, that affected me the way it obviously affected James Bridges, but the way that films were so important to my life beyond just, I like movies. I connected to that part of this film. Well, in the book uh, that Tonget wrote is that he actually found some of Bridges, like childhood friends and interviewed them about like how he was like growing up in Arkansas and stuff. And one distinctly recalls them driving, I believe, to Little Rock to see East of Eden, which is the opening scene of the movie is just Richard Thomas sitting in a theater and weeping openly at the final scene of East of Eden and and really connecting with like uh, James Dean and and seeing that like what James Dean would mean to an entire generation of, of creatives who, who would come out of the fifties here, because that is the one thing that bridges does very well is all the adults that we see and they hear the radio broadcast. And even some of the, the kids are like, why do you care about some movie actor dying? And it's like, but it's, it's that thing of like, this guy gets it. Like, and, and this is the event. It's almost <laughs> like his nine 11 to where it's like, it's, it's the, the tragic event that's going to like shape the rest of his existence. The, the closest comparison I could come to from our generation is when Kurt Cobain died. Mm. Like that was the thing that I thought of 
John Lennon for our parents. Yeah, John Lennon like. for our parents and stuff, and like uh, maybe Elvis at some point, but he was old and fat at that point. So yeah. like, I'm just thinking more of young people. But like Kurt Cobain, I remember growing up, and like when he killed himself. Like having friends, because I was still in grade school and shit. But like, I had friends who all of a sudden were dyeing their hair pink and wearing like ratty cardigans and and openly weeping while fucking listening to like tapes on their Walkman and shit. And these kids were like eleven and twelve years old. I mean, Jimmy J is at least you know nineteen. He was the the age that James Bridges was before. Because there's even that entire sequence where they uh, go to the uh, local store and he robs it for liquor. And kind of runs out because, but it illustrates that how young he actually was. He can't even buy booze at this point. Yeah. But, you know, this is very much James Bridges' like love letter to both the art of acting, the art of cinema, and just the art of creation. And the fact that like something that is fictional, that is not real, and, and is created by people that you've never met and probably never will meet for your entire life can touch you so deeply that that's all you want to do. Yeah. And it's it's absolutely tremendous. I can't recommend it enough. There's a Scorpion Blu-ray out there that you can track down for pretty cheap. I got it during one of the last, like, Kino Lorber uh, sales for, like, five bucks or whatever. And, like, it's now a treasured item in my collection because I just... It's one of those movies that you're like, oh, my God, this existed this whole time? I've been alive and it took me this long to see it? Fuck yeah, man. But then he jumps straight from the most personal movie that he makes to his first kind of big commercial, both gig and success with The China Syndrome, the movie that you had seen before we started this project. And to be fair, it's real fucking good. This movie kicks so much ass. Like in watching them in order... I think one of the other things we should just mention about James Bridges is like, what a versatile filmmaker. I mean, for yeah. a guy who made eight films, like, yeah, there's, there's common themes. There's, you know, obviously he reads actors, there's things he's interested in, but he'll go film the film. And like, if you were like, Hey, do you, th- true or false the guy who made September 3rd, 1955 is also the guy who made China syndrome. True or false. Most people might say false. Like they're yeah. pretty fucking different. What I love about this movie is it really fits into the kind of like paranoid thrillers of the 70s. So he's playing in that sandbox. But then he also gets this these performances. And I, I think it's something we just shouldn't forget about is, you know, he uses a lot of people who are movie stars who've been in lots of other films, been worked with a lot of other auteurs. And he gets some, honestly, for the books, you know, performances out of them. And I think that one of those is Jack Lemmon in this. And I love Jack Lemmon. I always have. I love The Apartments, one of my favorite fucking movies. I like The Odd Couple. I love Glenn Glare, Glenn Ross. I love anything he shows up in. This one, he uses him. He uses that that kind of Jack Lemmon neuroses, which he was really good at. But it's t- that nervousness, that nervousness, but really takes it to an extreme. And I, I kept thinking of the insider while I watched this film of, of the whistleblower. Well, this is, yeah, you this know. is very much, if we're talking about proto things, like this is the, the, the first like insider. It also kind of remind me of broadcast news a good yeah. bit because Jane Fonda's whole character arc is like, and it's a, it's a theme that he'll revisit with perfect with the, the Adam Lawrence uh, character. And that is that, it's very much about a woman 
again, who's been pigeonholed by her profession and is basically told, hey, just be pretty, do these fluff pieces, blah, 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 while she's trying to do like real journalism, you know, and more or less stumbles upon this nuclear reactor, which is on the brink of like exploding. And Jack Lemon and Wilford fucking Brimley are the guys in the control room who can't, who are, who are basically tasked with, you know, twisting all the dials and knobs and hoping against all hope that the readings come out correct because the way they play it in all the control rooms is that nobody has any idea how anything works in this fucking nuclear reactor. Well, cause they, they keep saying that all, all these older guys have been there since before nuclear existed right. as a like power source. They're, you well, know, this I, was very much like a message movie for Fonda yes. and Mike. I mean, Michael Douglas is in it too. As he like it. her, ca- Yeah. <laughs> as her rogue cameraman who really becomes like the guy who pushes this story forward and, and makes it kind of what it is. Um, but yeah, it, it's, and they even talk about in the book that Bridges would pray every morning before going to shoot because he, he felt this enormous pressure on him uh, telling a story about nuclear power, especially in the seventies and how like, if they don't get the message across properly, then he's failed. Like they have to show the dangers of this properly. Wow. Yeah. Like it's, it's pretty ridiculous, but in the end, this is just a really crackpot little thriller. It's agreed. And, and, it actually kind of might refute our idea about there being no real bad guys. This one is a straight up, like the company men are bad dudes. Oh, they're bad. They're like full on. Like they have this very, it's great. Some great paranoid scenes of, you know, you're being followed. You're not sure if you're being followed. There's just these unmarked cars that take care of the company's business when you're speaking out against it. Um, it moves though. And I think that what I, what's really cool about, um, it moves like a thriller. It moves like a thriller. And one of the things that James Bridges does really well is he knows how to open a film, but like he really throws you into the world. I mean, from baby maker on, um, where you're just kind of in it. And, and this one, I think specifically that scene, it's, it's after the opening scene, but when they're, when they actually go out to, actually, no, it's the opening scene where you see her, being on the call with people in the station while she's basically trying to corral these um, singing telegram people. And it's like this shot and she's like, all right, oh, oh, oh. So they're like, Hey, where's your camera guy? Oh, he's in the bathroom. Can you give us two more minutes? No, we got to go right. We got to go to commercial. And then it's like the kind of like real time thing. And you see it very similar, honestly, to Michael Mann, you know, obsessed with how people work, like the, the details of professions. And like you said, subcultures, and then the scene where they're trying to shut down the first mistake in the nuclear power plant is so so tense, so well directed, but it's like, you see it slowly. It comes out, you know, Jack lemon, it just cuts. And he's this guy looking through a window. Oh, that's your supervisor. Have you met him yet? He kind of slowly walks. I goes, all right, everyone calm the fuck down. It's totally cool. And it slowly turns to, Oh my God, we're going to have a fucking meltdown. And there's a scene where he's like, he has one decision to make. He says, all right, try this. And he turns around and just puts his ha- his head on his hands on top of this computer and just stares ahead, like basically silently praying that the world's not going to explode and it's his fault. Um, but it just, the way he can build tension in these scenes, I mean, obviously we'll get to Mike's murder, which is like, the whole thing feels like, <laughs> like the whole time. Yeah. It's real, real gross. It's just, but it also is <laughs> tense, you know, like really tense. Like there's a, a powder keg feel. Sure. It's a lot of his narratives. Well, and this is also the other movie where he would 
kind of come together with a key collaborator, which is Ray Villalobos, who would end up, he was a cameraman on this, who they tell a story in the book that he uh, captured a pretty intense car stunt, but there was B-roll footage of him shooting it. And the car is coming really, really fast. It's that shot where the the henchman's driving and you kind of see it go off the road a little bit. And Villalobos had the camera set up really close and the car was coming straight at him. And they said in the B-roll that you saw him basically dash out and get almost get hit by the car, but then instantly sprint right back and pick the camera back up so that he could capture the rest of the scene. And Bridges was so impressed with his like commitment to actually like getting the best possible footage that he could, that when it came time to shoot uh, Urban Cowboy and Villalobos was inserted as like a candidate to shoot that, like Bridges was like, yeah, I'm cool with that. Like this guy's like totally my type of dude, <laughs> which I guess we should just jump right into urban cowboy Let's now because I mean, this is so we were talking before we started recording. And to me, this is like fight club, but for people from Texas, because I, I feel like it's a movie that uh, really immerses you in a certain type of subculture, which is Gilly's bar which is a subculture unto itself. It's one of the biggest honky-tonks that ever existed on the planet. And it came from a article, the original idea from the movie, came from an article from a, a Esquire journalist named Aaron Latham, who uh, wrote a story called Urban Cowboy, America's Search for True Grit. And it was all That's about a great title. he got uh, sent down to cover this bar Gillies as a bit of a puff piece, kind of the same way that Jane Fonda is assigned to the nuclear reactor and more or less like stumbled upon this idea of being like, oh my God, this is crazy. Because in Latham's own words, he was like, what was weird to me is that here's all these guys who work these nine to five jobs, have never ridden a horse, have never ridden a bull, but they're getting all dolled up head to toe in fucking rhinestones and boots and Stetsons and and riding this mechanical bull and punching these punching bags and really going into like get drunk and fight each other and prove their their worth as a man. And he's like, that's weird. <laughs> like, like these guys aren't fucking cowboys, but they really think of themselves as cowboys. And that's kind of where my fight club comparison comes in is that like we live in Austin. There's been a million screenings of fucking urban cowboy that I just have never attended. I tried to one time and then found out it was sold out like all of the other ones because they're almost always sponsored by these like celebrate your Texas heritage type groups who you know are going in and drinking Lone Star and taking shots and really like getting into the Texas of it all and urban cowboy. But the point of the movie is that these guys are like kind of assholes and, and don't see what they're doing to themselves in real time. It feels like the film version of uh, born in the USA where people sing that song and it's oh, like, yeah. oh, that's an anti-Vietnam song, you know, right? And they're yes. like, oh, I'll, but it's about being, oh, I love USA. It's like, do you hear the lyrics? It's like that kind well, of. glory days. Yeah, same kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's not a lot, a lot of Bruce Springsteen stuff that people think is much more hopeful than it is. Yeah. <laughs> because, patriotic. And this is in a weird way, or not weird way, but like 
uh, because they both come from the same studio, more or less, or the same time period. But it feels like a companion piece to uh, Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta, where John Travolta, you know, everybody uh, thought of and still more or less thinks of Saturday Night Fever as the disco movie, the movie where John Travolta puts on the white suit and goes and dances. And that's what it is. And a BG soundtrack. And, and the BG soundtrack and everything. But that movie is not about that. That movie is about how these fucking goons from Long Island or Staten Island, I guess, in that one, um, have nothing else going for them. They're all working dead end jobs. They're all abusive, misogynistic dick faces. But like when it comes Saturday night and they could put that fucking double knit, you know, suit on, they become a superstar for that. Those couple hours every Saturday. But I mean, that's what urban cowboy is kind of about. It's just the square dancing version of that too. But this movie is fucking amazing. It immerses you in this world in a way that no other film really does. Well, not no other, but very few other films ever do. It's a true American epic. It really feels that way where it, it doesn't lose the feel of a Bridges film where I think character does often come first. I think he really hones in on character. Um, and it's again, like it's a very surprising narrative here from the beginning. You're like not really sure where it's going. Then you kind of understand like what the plot is and what the, the theme is. But I think performative toxic masculinity is like at the core of this film. Like you said, like the punching, like the punching machine, um, I think the line dancing is fine, but then, you know, when they get the bull, it is obviously very sexual thing too, of, oh, yeah. uh, for women and men of, of getting up there of, you know, I can do this and it really, it really follows, um, this main character of, of, of Bud, uh, played by John Travolta. And I think honestly, one of his best performances that I've ever seen. Um, I, I watched this this morning for the first it's time. It's a real movie star performance. He's, I mean, he's great. I mean, I think it's that same, same era and same level, what he was doing in blowout. Now blowout requires me much more like the star of a thriller. So he's in that kind of frazzled state more. This though is much, it's just the arcs, the, the, the kind of peaks and valleys of, of his story, um, and the gray area too, because, you know, you have this Scott Glenn character who's kind of ends up becoming the, the villain of the film, um, Wes, who is, is, is very, a real cowboy, is a real cowboy and a real abusive piece of shit. Um, but also Been to prison, but also like Bud, John Falls character also hit his wife. Like it's not this like black and white kind of thing is like he they're they're dancing in the same area he literally asks sissy to marry him after slapping her and in must a, wrestling her in, in the a mud. diner and then wrestling her in the mud they get in the car together which after he finally convinces her to get back in and he goes should we just get married and then they get married in fucking gillies yep it's um but it's, it's something really interesting about this film um is similar. It has a lot of empathy. It doesn't judge the people of this world, no. of the others community. Cause it, it really makes it in a similar way to two when we get to perfect of there's some ridiculous shit. Like it, it, it doesn't hide the fact that this is kind of weird for, for a non, right. for a person who's uninitiated. But at the same time, it really shows like why people would like this lifestyle. You know, I, I, it looks fun. Like when it's fun, it looks really fucking fun. Oh yeah, you know? all the women are smoking fucking hot. Yes, the we've all drank plenty of Lone Star beer living in Texas. Square dancing with hot women while you're drunk and 
drinking whiskey and fighting people. Like, yeah, it looks great. Like, you understand, like, the the real, like, salt-of-the-earth masculine appeal. But, like, if you ever uh, read the article that Latham writes uh, and compare it to the movie, uh, the article has a much more guy-from-the-big-city-looking-down-on-country-folk kind of feel to it that even Latham, when quoted in the book, talks about it, too, is that he was like, yeah... He's like, you can't really do that in a movie. And he goes, and that's when Jim, you know, that that's where his magic kind of came in is that to him, there are no bad people. And it's all about empathizing with these people. Because the one thing the book really, really drives home is that James Bridges mostly had a career because he was a nice fucking guy. He was immensely talented, but everybody who talks about him who's interviewed is like, Anytime he showed up, everybody loved Jim Mack. Everybody thought Jim was the greatest. He would have a great joke. He would hang out with you. He was incredibly kind and warm. And like, even when he got heated, like during creative disputes and whatever, it was never like a screaming match or anything. Like Jack Larson talks about the only time he ever got into a, a, a shouting match with Bridges was over a script and he threw the script at Larson and then immediately came back and was like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and it was just like, like he was just an immensely, immensely kind individual. Uh, but that's where that empathy kind of comes from is that to him, there is no judgment. And I think it also helps that like, he's from the South, he's from Arkansas. Like he knows these fucking people. So like he can kind of zero in on uh, that, masculinity and where it comes from as parts of that culture. But I also find interesting, I watched this movie a bunch of times before reading the book and then comparing the notes kind of afterwards is that to me, one of the things that I find fascinating about it is that kind of like September 30th, 1955, is that it feels distinctly like the viewpoint of a guy who sees himself as an outsider, or at least outside of the culture that he's currently a part of. The same way that Jimmy J just wants to run for California because like this town is too small for him. This feels like in Urban Cowboy, the observations of a gay man inside of like a straight, hard culture and being like, okay, what makes this tick? What makes this work? Because like, this is not for me, but like, if I dig deep enough, I can find the appeal of it. And that's literally the definition of empathy. Yep. And it's, it's just a beautiful thing. Something does not affect you at all. Yeah. It's not your world. But it gives the, the film a a very, uh, almost omniscient, uh, kind of viewpoint because it's you're looking through James Bridges eyes at these dudes as they act like total tool bags but he never is like they're fucking tool bags he's like you know what no when you sit down and you have a beer with them and you get inside their pigsty trailers and everything like you find out that they're guys just like you and me and like there's good parts of them there's bad parts of them and there's parts of them that I'm indifferent about you know but the one thing he was not indifferent about is that this is the first movie where he would work with uh, who would become his protege in Deborah Winger. And man, Deborah Winger as sissy in this film is like one of the all time towering performances from a female actor like ever. Like she is not only the sexiest thing that's ever fucking come on the screen, but she 
kind of like Barbara Hershey and the, the baby maker, this is very much about a woman inside of a subculture. This one dominated by men and like how she fucking establishes her identity inside of it against all of the abuse and uh, condescension and naysaying and like honestly as much as it's a drawn like john travolta movie it might be more of a deborah winger movie i would agree because she well and especially after i think after the midpoint like sometimes in a good script you'll you kind of trade protagonists or at least give a perspective to that protagonist and i think she really takes over the film then right because honestly the more interesting story at that point as sad as it is is her relationship with wes with with scott glenn and how she just went from a bad relationship to a worse relationship, you know, and that she thought she had freed herself. And now she's just going further and further down the rabbit hole of like of assholes. I, she, well, and it's also it, it takes on the point of view of like, how do women see the sexual appeal of this true grit uh, masculine culture, too? Because well, like one of the earliest things that she even asked Bud is, are you a real cowboy? And, like, Bud isn't a real cowboy. We know he's not a real cowboy. He just fucking moved there from some hick town in another part of Texas, drives to fucking Houston, and has, like, this beer from the farm. And his mom calls him literally the next day after he arrives and has a threesome. And (laughs) wakes up hungover in the bed with two naked women uh, comes home, gets a phone call from his mom. and was like, mom, I didn't have a fucking job yet. I've been here like 12 hours, but like it shows you the kind of dude that this guy is, that he's a country fucking hick, even in a, in, in a town that's way bigger than him. So like winger right away, I think she knows it too, but she loves bud because maybe that, that presents a softness to her that isn't present in this, these other dudes, but she's still very much looking for a West. She wants a West to rock her world. And unfortunately he rocks her world in a few negative ways as well. Well, yeah, she learns agree that she and, and bud both learn. It's a great kind of good romantic narrative. And honestly, a classic romantic comedy plot, of people coming together, they're pulled apart and they come back together. Right. You know, and they're very much pulled apart by his pride, by Bud's pride and inability to, to apologize. And her, honestly, honestly, actually she's in the right. Cause she's hurt by him. She's like, well, fuck this. I'm out. Um, and she's the strongest character in the movie. Absolutely. And, and she, and she's taking control of her life. But I, I agree. I think something about, her performance in this, obviously her performance in Mike's murder, the female performances, everyone's performance, but the female performance he gets out of all his leads are amazing from baby maker on where the women are, they're sexy. They're probably the sexiest they've ever been. He makes them look amazing, but also like deep. Like it's not just this like surface level thing. I think Deborah Winger, her character, Sissy is so deep in this. I think, Barbara Hershey has never been sexier than Baby Maker. And and she's like, again, because it's like he he layers in Well, he makes them real people. Real people. He layers in intelligence. He layers in her maternal side. All these things that are just complex. And he makes them these layered characters. And I mean, I think uh Lindsay Wagner in fucking um Paper Chase is just amazing like she's yeah. she's an amazing character um well, and Jamie Lee Curtis and perfect. Jamie Lee Curtis, I mean, I think that's the, the most like and Again, I, I don't want to just talk about looks, but her her performance in that, it's like 
really nuanced and also like movie star quality. Like he knows how to get like realism from his actors, but they're also like larger than life. He balances that really well. Like I think especially perfect has this like movie star, movie star feel. Well, that's uh, to take it back to his uh, stage days. One of the things that they talk about is that uh, a couple of the uh, plays that Jack Larson wrote for him that he staged and directed um, were written in more or less iambic pentameter or like a Hansel and Gretel style verse. But James Bridges would make his actors or he would make the decision for his actors to do this, to interpretate his decision, as I'd say, because again, one of the things that he was known for was not being a tyrant. Like he would make very casual, small suggestions to them. And then they either took it or they took it their way. And then if it didn't work, he went, well now do it my way. Um, But his way was, all right, cool. I know that this is written in a very hyper stylized sing songy kind of verse, but I want you to deliver it almost like you're ordering groceries. I want you to do it in a very naturalistic everyday take. And that's, I think what makes so many of his movies really, really work is that he puts, he brings these uh, heightened uh, situations or immerses you in these, these kind of oppressive subcultures, but he lets his actors be like, how would you act inside of this? How would you normally exist? And that's what brings a, a level of truth to it. And Winger uh, connects with that direction in both uh, Urban Cowboy and Mike's Murder quite a bit because her work in Mike's Murder is just magnificent stuff. You know, we use this, this line a lot, but she seems out of all the people he's worked with, like most game for what his style Right. Like again, when you have an actor like that, more even more than Travolta, because like she just like really just disappears into these movies, and she's so like just like a firecracker. Like you just can't not look at her. Yeah, like she's just she draws all your attention, all your empathy, everything. Just she's so I don't know breathtaking. Like, just yeah, in every way. But it's and you kind of figure out too why. Uh, Bridges fought for her to be in the movie apparently because you know this movie is famously produced by uh, Robert Evans, one of the craziest maniacs to ever run Hollywood ever, and then Irving Azoff, who was mostly part of the very uh, successful soundtrack that was released way before the movie even came out because that was again in the days where the soundtrack was a huge selling point and the urban cowboy soundtrack became one of the most iconic and biggest selling country records of all time. And Azoff's uh, ties to the record industry was where his produce producing kind of credits came in is because he was all uh, in charge of getting the movie or the, the, the music for the movie made where Bob Evans was just fucking Bob Evans, you know, uh, snorty McCoke fuck as, <laughs> as Patton Oswalt once famously called him, you know, fucking Allie McGraw. Well, she thought about Steve McQueen's dick yeah. and uh, just being a general uh, psycho, but he was still, I don't think he was running Paramount at this point. This might've been after that, but he was still a huge player and he wanted Sissy Spacek to be Sissy and Bridges was like, nah, I don't think that works at all. And then the other people who read for it too were, I believe, Michelle Pfeiffer. And I'm blanking on the other one. But 
basically winger was not on the list winger was nowhere to be found because she hadn't really amassed a whole bunch of credits at this point but uh bridges was like i i want her like i want this this girl to be in the movie she's going to be in the movie so that's basically final but again in the book they describe it as that like he didn't go in and start screaming and shouting he just very calmly was like this is my choice and thus like one of his created like greatest partnerships was born between him and winger because between this and mike's murder like you're not going to find two better uh, performances like no. she's just on fire just from anybody yeah we should then jump into mike's murder next um which is the first movie of his that i saw and now in hindsight the, the least james bridges of all of his films because it's so sleazy, so, uh, again, I, I hate to keep coming back to the, the word oppressive, but this one really is oppressive with like, it's just gets you into the world of small time hustlers, Coke dealers. And then Deborah Winger is like the angelic presence on the outside of it all who has to enter after the guy she's having more or less like a sporadic tryst with like over like a year. like a very casual sexual relationship he's murdered quite brutally and then she uh, investigates his death to basically find out like who the person she actually fucking was and it it's wow it this is such a goddamn great movie it's it's the best thing i watched all last year it's funny because it seems like the perfect film to um as bait for you to get into James Bridges because you you love good sleaze. I mean, you do like you love like you it's know true. New York and LA sleaze and and um, this is a great great cracks in the sidewalk LA movie it, very much. And we kept talking; it feels very at moments like Straight Time a little bit too. Um, it was about right. We we're talking about this and Straight Time. Um, yeah, and and Reservoir Dogs. That view of LA, it's it's the. Um, the hazy, wow, it's so beautiful, but like underneath it is a really nasty underbelly. Um, you and I also kept kind of talking about, or I kept bringing up American Gigolo, which we said is, you know, obviously they're, they're definitely playing in different, in similar worlds. Um, you know, Schrader's is much more stylized and, and much more, um, I guess, mythic at points too. And much more stoic, more, too. more stoic and, and, and thematic with a capital T. Like it's about this. This it's, is his, it's just all around much more Schrader. Yeah. It's like capital S Schrader, capital S Schrader doing his Brisson like series. Um, and this feels honestly, this is one of those movies. And I don't say this often is like, I've never seen anything else like it. It's a really, it's a very like one of a kind vibe in his, in his filmography in, anyone's filmography for that matter. Um, I love what a great idea. What a great story um, of just a, a fuck. You basically have a fuck buddy. That's all they right. are to you. And Who's then, his, her tennis instructor too. Right. And he's, and he dies. And so how do you react to someone who kind of maybe meant so little to you? <laughs> and you know, they have the guilt that goes along with that too. I, mean, I wish I would have known them better. And the fact that, like you said, it's about her trying to solve his murder, but also just like you said, find out who he was like, cause she's like realizes she didn't know him like 5% of who he really was as a person. 
Yeah, and then she more or less finds out that he is this bright, shining star to not just her, but like a ba- more or less everybody that he interacted with um, because he's the object of fascination for both her and gay men too, which she finds because in part that he was kind of a hustler too. Like he is hinted at more than once that they probably paid him for sex because she tracks down a, uh, both an old friend of his, Sam, uh, who was kind of this lonely photographer who would take pictures of them while they play tennis. And then a Quincy Jones kind of style music producer who's played by Paul Winfield, who Mike stayed with a lot uh, with a bunch of uh, other very sexy boy toys, let's say. And then also like hot women just hanging around the pool and stuff like he has a real fucking kind of swinger lifestyle going on, just hanging out in that, that awesome robe and drinking nothing but like, Cavassier and and smoking cigars like Paul Winfield's just doing it up. But Paul Winfield's key uh, to talking about this movie because apparently Mike, the gigolo in question, was based on his real life lover. And it was a story that was told uh, to uh, Larson and Bridges at first uh, about how he was sleeping with this guy. And then they all basically hung out and became friends. But in the same way that you're uh, describing with uh, Deborah Winger and Mike in the movie, and that it's a very casual relationship. They're, they're not married. They're not dating. They're just, you know, they bump into each other. I think even Mike points out at one point that like they haven't talked to each other in three months when they have that great kind of phone sex scene together. But Winfield uh, was having a relationship with a guy. He floated in and out of the circles that Larson and Bridges uh, hung out in. And then one night they were all supposed to go out to dinner together and this guy didn't show up. And they find out later that he was brutally murdered because he got into like a Coke deal that went sideways and Bridges and Winfield and everybody were so haunted by this guy. Cause even as Larson describes him is that he was the most strikingly beautiful man I'd ever seen in my life. And he did the same things that Mike in the movie does. Like he taught tennis, he partied, he might've hooked a little bit, a floater uh, hustler. He was yeah. just kind of this dude who was on the periphery, but like, Anybody who interacted with him was instantly just kind of smitten, you know, and like he just made that imprint on their souls. And like Bridges absolutely had to make this movie and he made it on a very small shoestring budget for the lad company. And it becomes like it's not a signature work because it's so different from the rest of his filmography. But for my money, this is still like his crowning achievement. It's just such an intoxicating piece of motion picture making. I think it's probably his best directed film. Yeah. I I think, I mean, it's not my favorite of the group, but I think that it's the most, like you said, oppressive, like atmosphere is so huge in this film. There's atmosphere in all, all his work, but this one really, 
gets you into a headspace of also paranoia, like beyond like China syndrome's got great kind of paranoid narrative stuff, but it's like, again, that kind of like, Oh no, this is Henry Hill at the end of Goodfellas paranoia. This is you done too much Coke and you've been up for three days and you're kind of sweaty. You think somebody's like always following you. Like that's how Mike is presented. And then his, his buddy Pete, who's the worst friend you could have ever, let's say. Um, and is the real reason that pretty much anybody's, in this predicament at all because he he's the one who instigates the coke robbery let's say and like that's the other funny thing too or maybe not funny that's the wrong word to use but like morbidly humorous uh ideas that like the amount of coke these guys steal like they didn't steal like a clarence in alabama suitcase full of fucking coke they like the people that they're meeting with are looking the other direction. They scoop like a couple scoops into a Ziploc bag and are like, yes, and then run. And that's what they're killed for. And I think it's also like a strange comment on that scene in Los Angeles, which was a huge kind of dominating part of that industry, is that like this was a drug that would get you in. And if you didn't OD and you were like involved in the dealing of it, it could get you killed just as quick. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's something it kind of reminds me of um, the beginning of Beverly Hills Cop, where he steals the one bag of bear bonds. That's what he's killed right. for his his best friend out of like thousands of those bags. Of right. ba- you know, and it's the whole thing of like, I didn't think anyone was going to miss him. Just these bottom, you know, and I don't call them bottom feeders, you know, like these hustlers who were like, oh, man, this could like get us like maybe 3000 bucks and float us for a couple weeks so we could have a good time. Like, that's it. We yeah. either use it ourselves or we sell it. Because Mike and Pete don't really they, – they don't have real jobs outside of teaching tennis For Mike, in Mike's case. They don't really have a home, it seems like. They just kind of float and sleep on couches or whoever they're they're currently fucking or whatever. Like they hop from place to place and like, yeah, they, they sell enough Coke to basically get them through and have some that they can do themselves. And that's it. Like that's their life, which is pretty sad. Absolutely. it's. I think it's, you know – for Deborah Wanger's character, um, Betty, right? Um, right. What's something that I think comes out of the film is that guilt of when you find out the person that was basically kind of your, your, your fuck toy, you know, that she had a relationship where she has more money than him. You know, she's a, has, she has a much more stable life than he does. Um, she has a very boring life. Boring and life. I think that's hit upon purposefully is that like, she's a teller at a bank. She lives in this kind of, you know, small cramped apartment. She, her, you know, she's driving a used car. Um, she's a young probably you know late 20 something she has her shit together but like she ain't living it up or anything no but i just mean the way that she learns that this person that she kind of just had in her mind in a certain way as as a hookup right had a lot of horrible shit going on like when you when you twist over and you, you the way you've kind of not realized the person in your life that you hadn't seen the whole picture Right. I think there's some guilt there too, you know, that goes along with that of, oh, I had no idea. It's kind of the really depressing version of finding out the dude in the cubicle next to you is really good at karaoke. You're like, oh shit, I didn't know that. this motherfucker had that in him. Right. You know, <laughs> but this is the sad version where people die or take you hostage in your own home because they're so coked out and paranoid. <sighs> that final sequence, man, is it's so amazing. dark and, and uh, Ugh. It's scarier and more tense than most horror movies I've ever seen. Yep. 
and uh, the other thing that we should note too is that like even though this is a very personal movie and he got to make it the way he want it also had a very strange uh, post-production history because it was originally shot in 1982 the same year I believe that she would do Terms of Endearment because right. off, Officer and a Gentleman she shot in 81 came out in 82 yeah which uh, there's also something interesting there is that like Bridges claimed that he wrote Mike's murder in part to bring her out of retirement because she'd already quit acting because she hated Officer and a Gentleman <laughs> I don't know if yeah. that seems apocryphal at this point but like um you know, he brings her out. They shoot it in 82, but then they go through a pretty arduous uh, test screening uh, pattern to where, like, the first cut of the movie that they show is hated. Like, hissed, booed, terrible comment cards because it's a totally different edit of the, the final movie that we would see because... Uh, apparently like Mike's murder was actually in it. Like it was brutal and horrible and on screen, like these two black hitmen basically come in and like cut his heart out and slit his throat and stuff like real awful shit. And to the point that Jack Larson in, in this critical book, uh, claims that at the first test screening that people were like crying in the bathroom and being like, how can I go on with my life after (laughs) seeing Mike's murder? Which again, seems apocryphal to me, but whatever print the legend. Um, but that also it had a, uh, Joe Jackson score, or at least it was mostly, it was almost kind of like not a jukebox musical, but like every time somebody was in a car or a house or something, there would be a Joe Jackson song playing. And they just realized that this, it just didn't fucking work at all. So they came in, got a second editor and then recut the entire music, got John Barry to come in and give it this very, as you kind of pointed out, De Palma-y, like Pino Donaggio-esque, twinkling uh, thriller score, cut it all back. And also, there was some chronological stuff that they reordered, because apparently the, the first cut of the movie took place... It relied heavily on flashbacks, which some of that's still there, and it was a little more achronologically told. But the the final cut of the movie, like even Bridges, because I've seen some people talk about this movie on like Letterbox and stuff as being like, oh man, I'd love to see the original Bridges cut. But it seems like this is the the Bridges cut because like he was just part of it. The first one didn't work, and it wasn't like the the producer or the studio like locked him out or whatever. He was just like, oh shit, I gotta retool this thing. Yeah. Now. Would I love to see the footage of like the actual Mike's murder scene and and get an idea of like what that first cut looked like? Sure. But this isn't like release the Snyder cut shit. It's just there's another edit of of Mike's murder that might not have worked at all. Yeah. You know, that's just part of the creative process. But then we get to our penultimate movie is that his re-teaming with John Travolta for Perfect, another uh, adaptation of an Aaron uh, Latham story which he wrote for rolling stone and this is like is it fair to say the movie that you and i enjoyed the most just from a sheer entertainment value you you text me while you're while you were watching it you're like this is the most fun i've had and then i watched it today and i i completely agree like it feels like a hidden 80s gem besides james bridges film it's just this like really like it is fun to watch like well a lot of people regard this as a so bad it's good type movie and i watch it and i'm like this movie fucking rules i don't know what you're talking about because it's very much travolta coming in playing a stand in for adam latham this time 
and then he, while he's doing a very hardcore, like it seems like game changing profile on uh, an ab scam type, like like co, what, what was he like involved in? Like he was a computer, a computer like um, mogul, tech mogul who ended up like losing money, and so he ended up selling drugs or something yeah. to like the Soviet Union. Yeah, I think it was like a whole federal thing. But he has tapes from an interview that he does with this guy. They keep talking about the McKenzie story, the McKenzie story, the McKenzie story the entire time. And it's this thing that's kind of dominating his life at the moment because there's even going to be an FBI probe and subpoena asking him to turn over the tapes that he has from this uh, confession because he's apparently the only person who has the, the, the uh, confessions and the evidence on this tape. While at the same time, he's been assigned by Rolling Stone to look into the Sports Connection, which is uh, the new kind of rise in health clubs, which more or less are now like LA Fitness or Gold's Gym. The, the aerobic era. Yeah, the, and this is the the start of like the, the heavy kind of aerobics fad that took over some of pop, pop culture for a very short period of time, we'll say. Um, but he begins a relationship with a smoking fucking hot Jamie Lee Curtis and profiling how, you know, the, the gym scene is now the, the singles bar of the eighties for Los Angeles. And man, this movie is like such a strange amalgamation of like hard journalism, rom-com, uh, goofball kind of melodrama and aerobic exploitation that like, just tickles me every time I watch it. Yeah, I'm wondering if the reason that people view it as kind of a, an, a as a lark is that it it's incredibly memeable. Well, it's memeable. It's dated as fuck. Like yeah. I know for a fact. I think it was before a couple Alamo screenings. They used a lot of footage of Jamie Lee Curtis and her leotard because it looks ridiculous. Like she has oh, a, it's silly. A full on like kind of what's like, that one movie from the the 80s that was all aerobics hard bodies? I think it was hard bodies. Yeah, like this is fitting into that kind of same subgenre. It's very dated just in general, and but. And all the synthy kind of new wave pop on it. I mean, even Jamie Lee Curtis has a straight up new wave mullet in it. Oh yeah, well, it's I a mean, good mullet though. It's a it's a nice one. Um, I thought this though, regardless of the subject matter, was another just like perfect script from Bridges. Like yeah. it, the structure is is perfect. Like nothing it, in it should work at all. Well, it, it's it's cool because you you mentioned like you have. I think another person might have left the whole McKenzie tapes thing out that you could tell the film without it. If you had to, it could be straight up about a guy who is um, given an assignment. He doesn't want to go, you know, well, it's the Jane Fonda thing from China syndrome is that it's like, yeah, okay, cool. You can do this hard journalism, but the real money and the way you get on the cover of Rolling Stone is by doing these puff pieces. Right. Yeah. Cause that's what they want. And it, but it's again, you know, Bridges really knows character and he knows how, like, I think what's really great is he gives you a character's, like, their whole setup from the beginning with every film. And, like, this opening scene is so perfect because, aha, no pun intended, he's um, he's working at a news desk in, new, in Jersey City. Writing obituaries. Writing obituaries. And it's this whole setup where you have this, like, little comedic scene of he's being overwhelmed with people asking for, like, He's like on, on the phone with a woman saying like, well, how do you die? He's like, well, I got to know her. I can't write the obituary. And then he's, he, he, <laughs> he walks up to his, the editor and he says, 
you got to get me out off the fucking obit desk. I'm going insane. The guy goes, well, he's like, well, trust me. This is the last time. Look at this way. This is the last time in your life you're ever going to be able to write something nice about someone in, in print. And he's like, and then it cuts and it's like credits. And yeah, they very much go out of their way to uh, paint Adam Lawrence as a dickhead. Like he's a guy who is just taking the hatchet to people in print. And now he's kind of paying the toll for it. Like that they fucking get Carly Simon to be in the movie. And at first I thought they were faking it. So they're sitting at this table and they're like, here comes Carly Simon. Don't look at her. She's really pissed about what you wrote about her. (laughs) And then it cuts and it's fucking Carly Simon. I thought they were faking it and it's her. Like, and she comes up, she goes, I wrote that shit you wrote and fucking throws like tomato juice on his face. And it's just like this great, like you said, they really hammer it down that this guy, it will get anything for a story. Um, And again, it follows like classic rom-com rules though, too, where it's like he's changed by Jamie Lee Curtis, but it also gets into like some stuff like she had been in a uh, sexual relationship with her coach. Um, That's that's the only subplot in this that doesn't 100% work for me because I don't think it's fleshed out enough. Because even by the end, like we're not 100% sure what she's talking about because like her whole thing, her resistance to Adam's charms, let's say, is always like, well, I've been hurt by a journalist before. And you're like, what? You have? Like that's a very hyper-specific thing for anyone to say in life. Yes. But like – when you finally get to the reveal of it, like it's not even Adam who uncovers it. It's like one of his assistants who does, or oh, it's the photographer yeah. who, who's taking it. And uh, David Pamer too, who's like an assistant <laughs> editor who's hired to uh, rewrite the story after Adam totally tanks it. But like, that's the only part of it that doesn't work for me because I, I just don't think it's a two hour movie. And I think that might've been like a casualty of maybe edits because there probably was like a longer cut or a scene or two that explained what actually happened. But it's like, well, that's got to go. Like they got the general idea, like something bad happened. Reporter smeared her, blah, 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 blah. Get back to the a narrative. You know, the, I think the, the storyline in this that hits a, a level of sadness, actually not quite like Mike's murder because that's all melancholy, frankly, but like that I think is deeply sad and, and echoes uh, some of the sissy stuff from Urban Cowboy too, is that he uh, gets into kind of in his investigative uh, journalism way, he starts these bonds with these women at the, the health club and finds one who is known as the most used piece of equipment in the gym. Um, SNL uh, alum. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And then the other one's Mary Lou Henner, Henner uh, who is uh, like her best friend and is like the nice but like busty girl who all the guys like kind of lust after and is into all the instructors. Who's, and stuff. In, who's engaged to a Chippendales dancer. Yeah, exactly. But it, it gets into the idea of like why people would be attracted again to this subculture. But I think where Urban Cowboy is uh, sort of ambivalent about it overall and kind of leaves it up to you to decide again, the Texan fight club. This is very much like spells it out for you of like, these women do this, they sweat and they, they slave and the guys too, but like the women even more so they do it because they're in hopes of like finding that guy. And that if they perfect their bodies, they're worthy of love at a certain point, because even you know, the, the uh, sluttier character goes into how she's even going to get plastic surgery and everything so that she can get her face fixed. And even Travolta's like, why do you want to get your face fixed? Like you look perfectly fine. And it's like, 
well, if I'm perfect, then someone will love me. And you're yeah. like, it's really sad for a minute. But again, it's it's such a miracle that this movie pulls off that it's able to inject this deep sadness amidst a movie where, you know, Travolta is pelvic thrusting and like you see the outline of his dong. You can't not look small. at it. Yeah. It's in the center of the frame and he's just gyrating during these aerobics classes, sweating everywhere. And I'm like, all right, well he's at least got eight inches on him, but like, it's 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 a profoundly silly film that still finds a very very true emotional core, which is pretty amazing. I think that that's maybe a thing to say about Bridges in general as well. Is he's kind of a tonal master, yeah. even from the beginning. Is he can really play between a lighter scene and then again, like Mike's murder is pretty dirgeful the entire time. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. You know, but the other films, like, I mean, urban cowboy again, where you have like, you have the entertainment of like, wow, that looks like a lot of fun, like very quickly transitioning to like an abuse of, you know, a female abuse scene where it like really record scratches and, yeah. it, and it, but it's totally on purpose. You like know, all the West stuff in urban cowboy, how hard that clashes with the tone of kind of what came before too. Yes. Like, he's so mean to sissy. <laughs> He's horrible, but it, all the films have a really good, um, a really good balance of tone. Where it, I mean, again, like perfect. I, I see why people kind of laugh at it. It's like, man, it really like any film. It goes for the dark moments, you know. Um, it goes, it goes hard there. Also, going hard is the cinematography because the last movie that Gordon Willis would shoot for James Bridges, and you're just like. Gordon Willis shot your aerobics movie. That's so fucking weird. Well, that's what's so funny is I think this is a perfect pairing with Urban Cowboy because you could be like, that's the aerobics movie or that's the the mechanical bull movie. Because like we said, it's not an aerobics movie. You know, it's about everything else that goes with it. It's about this. It's yes, a subculture. The subculture is the entry point. Yes. Like it's and it's about the people who populate that subculture. Yeah. But I mean, why like, are they there? That's what the uh, articles were too. Cause yeah. if you re- I've read the original articles on both of them. Um, the looking for Mr. Good body, which is the actual name of the article that perfect is based on is a lot more empathetic than the urban cowboy one. Okay. Like he's, he's really doing something closer to, cause that's the other thing is that like Jamie Lee Curtis's character is the one who believes because her big stance against his article is, Oh, you're not going to be the guy who comes in here and talks about how gyms are the, the singles bar of the eighties. Are you? And he's like, no, what? (laughs) And the whole time he's basically lying to her about that. But because you find out that she actually has like a philosophy, she's kind of like the, the cane of, of the, the aerobic section of the gym because she talks about like, the spiritual side of, of, of getting your body in well, the shape. Emersonian the Emersonian America. Emersonian America. And that's what he ends up tanking the piece around is writing about what would Emerson think of Jim's in the eighties. And to me, that's one of the funniest scenes in the fucking movie is his editor reading it and being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I didn't ask for this. And like the assistants and photographer being like, I don't know, man, Not sure I was telling you. <laughs> but yeah, perfect is, uh, just such a great piece of entertainment for my money. The easiest watch in his entire like uh, body of work, no pun intended. Um, also, greatest credits of all time. 
because I, you know, I'm not going to spoil it. Yeah, if you watch Perfect watch after this podcast, just stay for the credits, not in a stupid Marvel way, but in a way that will make you so delighted, <laughs> especially Travolta's credit. Yes. So let's get to the last one, man. It's sad to see it go, and it's sad that it's the worst movie in his filmography. Though you disagree. You like Bright Lights Bits, Big City quite a bit more than I do. More than you did. I, I think it's probably still one of the weaker ones. Um, but I, I I kind of, you know, to give the, the audience kind of an idea, it's about also has some autobiography. He didn't write this. This is one of the few that he didn't write at all. It was an adaptation of a bestseller. And it, it's about a, um, like you said, kind of very, very Brett Easton Ellis kind of view of New York and young professionals and young art, you know, artistic types. And so Michael J. Fox plays uh, in the high stakes world of New York publishing, <laughs> New York. Yeah. New York magazine, uh, literary publishing, um, Gotham magazine. And so uh, Michael J. Fox is also, I believe, a Kansas boy. Um, yes. Um, he's a small town boy who's, who's gone to the big city again. Um, and after his mother has passed as well from cancer, I believe leukemia, I think because she haunts him. That is the one thing that should be brought up too, is that death in a weird way hangs around a lot of bridges movies. Um, you know, for a, a guy who, you know, his first film is about, you know, the, the, the ability to give life. It's very much also about a woman who it has had that part of her killed, you know, and then China syndrome is all about the, uh, edge of the knife kind of existence of nuclear power and how we could all die at any moment. Death of James Dean, Jeff, death of James Dean, September 30th, 1955, Mike's murder literally in the title. But like here, uh, he is haunted by his regrets surrounding his mother's death. And also it, but it's, and this is the part of the movie that I really struggle with is the whole coma baby fantastical subplot that he keeps dreaming up. I'm like, I I don't get this, that it's not really done that well, but it's a guy basically dealing with all of these anxieties while also nursing quite the debilitating cocaine habit and alcohol. Yeah. And alcohol. Full on addict. Yeah. It's one of the things you and I talked about earlier. And I think it probably an issue with this film is that it is quite chase. It's not a Brad Easton Ellis. It doesn't take it all the way. It's the PG-13 version of, like, less than zero. Very much. And also, like, I mean, I love Michael J. Fox, but the same thing, like, I just don't ever buy him as hardcore. I just, I don't, it's hard for me to, like, cross over, like, oh, man, he's really in trouble. Well, and this was, like, a purposeful kind of uh, casting decision or career career, uh, decision for him because he was trying to break away from Family Ties and and Alex Keaton. And and even Um, even Back to the Future, he wanted something more kind of hardcore. Because he... But in this, like you even pointed out, I hadn't realized the timeline uh, before you said it, but he does another Schrader movie, uh, Light of Day, um, which was originally supposed to be the first starring role for Bruce Springsteen, by the way. Mm. What a strange movie that was. So I Bruce st- Springsteen and Joan Jett as your leads? Yeah. That well, would have been sweet. Well, Springsteen wrote the title song, Light of Day, for the movie. Mm. So like, and he was supposed to star in it and dropped out right before production. <sighs> Michael J. Fox was actually a fill-in. That I screened that movie at Vulcan. Pretty good, you know, better than you'd think. Anyway, he's in this. It's a very somber, melancholy, rock and roll melodrama that Schrader gives you. And then in uh, 88, we've got 
Bright Lights, Big City. 89, Casualties of War. And then 89 is Casualties of War with Brian De Palma, one of the most unpleasant movies I've ever seen. Um, But like, so he's he's making conscious decisions here to try and break away from the TV cute guy typecasting that he's kind of found himself in. And frankly, it just doesn't work. Like, I just don't buy him as a, a cokehead alcoholic who's chasing after women. Okay. The one point I, I will agree with the movie on, but I don't think this has anything to do with Michael J. Fox, but if, if Phoebe Cates left me, <laughs> that would be the end. Like I would, I would probably go for heroin. No, it's well, again. I, I liked it better than you. I think it's still a very messy film. And I think one of the main problems is he didn't fucking write it. No, you yeah. know what I mean? You can feel there's a, he's definitely a writer director in in the best way where like, a big part of his auteurist touch is his dialogue, his writing, his pacing of a scene. And if he doesn't have control over the script, like it's just not going to be there and you can feel it in this film. Yeah. And coming from the playwright background, like all of these are his creations, you know? So it's, if he's not connected to that material, it totally, totally doesn't work. What does work in this though, is two things for me personally. One, Gordon Willis shoots the fuck out of the New York, cocaine kind of club all the club scene. scenes are awesome all of that neon american the, psycho style the american psycho style the synth pop that's in it even those opening credits with all the neon signs and shit like this is perhaps the most striking movie that he shot for him just on like a pure like eye candy level yeah. second thing that works for me is Kiefer sutherland Kiefer sutherland is basically like the 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 Pete of this one, the shitty best friend who does wants to do nothing but do coke and introduce him to to new loose women to do coke and, and have and, sex and with lie and lie lie about saying his wife is dead to like get yeah. him. Oh laid. yeah, get just like that horrible backstory, shit. like real <laughs> insane stuff. Like Kiefer Sutherland is almost like his character from The Lost Boys, but if he wasn't a vampire, <laughs> he's just a total shit bag. But he's the one out of anyone involved who totally gets what movie he's in. He's actually in a Brett Easton Ellis adaptation while everyone else is playing in like the kid's sandbox. (laughs) You know, like I I loved him in this because I was just like, but it's another thing that to your point of a movie not being written by Bridges is that that character would never appear in any other James Bridges movie. No, Like he's just so clearly, because even Wes an urban cowboy is humanized. Like you get into that guy's head, you understand him. He's a shit heel, but he's a shit heel who like you, you could have a beer with and be like, okay, cool. I don't want to hang out with this guy or let you watch my kids or invite you to Thanksgiving or anything, but I at least know you as a person. And there's elements again, he didn't write it, but that, that remind me of, of obviously paper chase where you have this intellectual world where he's trying to impress all, honestly, another John Houseman character, but also the woman in between and, and kind of being stuck in that, and do I do I sell out? Do I play the game? Right. Also, you have the Phoebe Cates character, who's his his wife Amanda, who's recently left him, and and she's at the same time so one dimensional, where it's it's so poorly kind of d- pulled off, where you find out oh, so she basically went to France, met a photographer, and then dumped him over the phone. She's like almost literally a manic pixie dream girl, very much, but also like a complete piece of shit because she's like looks at me goes. Hey, how's it going? You know, and it's yeah. and it's 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 kind of a, a good moment where it's like 
he builds up so much of I'm when I see her, everything will be okay. And then it's that great moment if he sees her and she's like, Hey, how's it going? Like hold these two glasses of wine. It's like, that's it. And it's this great moment of like, Oh, you fucking suck. And like, I've been like pining for you and ruining my life. You're gorgeous. But like, that's all you have to give me after what's happened. Yeah. Well, thematically, that was the thing that also reminded me of Mike's murder a little bit yes. and how you assign a certain value to an individual that you may not know at all, even if you're married to them. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you find out that she's just kind of a vapid bitch or just getting an answer, a yeah. person slash an answer to something like this will put things right. If right. I can get there. Exactly. And how she's like kind of like Mike was to Denver Winger's character. She's like this bright shining star that his whole universe kind of revolves around. But once it's like caves in on itself, he has no idea what the fuck to do. Yeah. You want to get to questions since we've covered the entire au revoir? Let's do it. All right. Questions about 1980s urban cowboy Martin. Top three bridges go. Um, number one, I will say. Shit, I should have had this prepared. I, I honestly, I like them all. Um, that's not an answer. That's not an answer. Um, I'll say I'll say perfect for number one. Mm. Um, two, I will go. Urban Cowboy and three, I'll go Paper Chase. Mike's Murder, perfect. Urban Cowboy, nice. Quick double feature. Um, I'm gonna do done before with double featuring with one of the other Bridges films. So um, I, I said it earlier, but Paper Chase I think goes well with Whiplash. Sure, I just think like you know the obsession with slash terror terror of a um, male professor who controls your success in life. There's no way Damien Chazelle did not <laughs> see paper chase when he puts together whiplash. I feel like sure. I would pro I'm going to stick with urban cowboy and I'm going to do lone star. Oh yeah. John sales do it like a Texas double feature about horrible, broken masculinity starring great movie stars who, <laughs> would go on to have magnificent careers. I mean, because, you know, Lone Star has not only Chris Cooper, Chris Christopherson, but like Matthew McConaughey in it and like one of his earliest roles yeah. and he's really terrific in it. 
Um, but I would sit through all five hours of that day of, of cinema because, God, you would get the mythology and the reality in both movies back to back. And it's just a tremendous... You know what? I might do that in the near future. I want to watch that now. I rewatched it five months ago. I was working on this script right now. Did you see it was announced for Criterion? Oh, oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because um, Lone Star came up in our first episode. That's true. When we were doing um, uh, Rolling Thunder. And we were talking about best Texas movies. and And that came up. And it's honestly... I love sales so much. That's one of my favorites. And like you said, both are about Texas, but they're very critical of, like you said, the myth making of Texas. The whole movie is about the myth making of your father and, and, but also how we look at our history in the state. We're recording from Texas right now. Um, the kind of blinders you can have on <laughs> to well, where like urban cowboy is literally about a guy making his own myth in real time. Yeah. Because like one of the things that I really found interesting reading the book is that they talked about how they shot uh, Travolta's performance in order in the beginning so that, you know, what he shows up at first, he has the beard, he looks yeah. scraggly, he's coming from the farm and then he gets the job at the oil refinery and they tell him more or less like beard ain't regulation. And he he goes to shave it, but he gets the fucking superhero intro from Bridges after that to where it tracks up from his boots to the can of Lone Star he's holding to him and the Stetson just clean cut. And it's like, you want to talk about like movie star moments to just totally pop and burn up the screen (laughs) that that fucking shot is like Bridges being like, John Travolta, you are the hottest man in the world right now. And I just made that for you. Yes. He looks fantastic. God, this is such a great movie. You know what? When when Lone Star comes out on Criterion, we're doing the Urban Cowboy I'm and Lone in. Star double feature. I'd watch both of them. I could I love Urban Cowboy and I've I love I've loved Lone Star for like 20 years. So I could watch that anytime. So remake. Yay, nay, eh. Of Urban Cowboy, no. Um, I think the only way it would be interesting, again, we've done this kind of a cop out we've done before, but like, I think a limited TV series could be kind of cool of like that like a Friday night Lights style type. Yeah. Thing. Or like an eight episode, you know? Yeah. It just gets into the, that, that subculture. Um, and David kind of, Simon's urban cowboy. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of like subplots you could, I think go off on a more, more stuff of what happens at work you know, of just like what it is to the you know, hard hat days, honky tonk nights. Cause the work is there almost as like a, a, a what it, it's supposed to there be as like a foil for what he does at night, but he kind of go into that more. I think his family life, there's plenty of stuff to explore, but besides that, there's just, I don't think a reason <laughs> to remake any of this. They are, they are somewhat one of a kind and with his voice telling it, I think, also, you know, actually, I think a good double feature that would go well with Urban Cowboy as well is um, Magic Mike, Ooh. another film that was advertised and people saw as the sexy thing, but it's not at all what it's supposed to be. It's a movie like, about addiction and deception and, and yeah, high melodrama between dudes, really. Where like Magic Mike Double XL is just about guys being guys and occasionally just swinging the banana hammock. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, but it's again that very similar thing of if you haven't seen it, you have an assumption about it. 
you know, it's 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 the the titillation sells it. But when you're there, like, oh wait, I, oh, I saw Magic Mike. Expo- it's classic exploitation, right? Yeah, but like, yeah, I remember seeing Magic Mike on opening weekend with a sold out crowd of all women. Me I too, was old, and my ex wife. And what a fucking screening that was. Like, I, you can't replicate it. Those women lost their goddamn minds, and I had, I just ate up every second of it. Lost it that they hated it, right? Well, no, they, they lost it during all the dance oh, sequences. So when I saw it, they liked the dance sequences, but when everyone walked back, I saw like Saturday opening weekend with my friends. And it was again all these like women groups. It was like all married women, like in their forties and fifties, like we're yeah, having, they were girls, having night, girls night. Girls night. What I experienced though was they were all like, like, "What the fuck was that?" Because like, yeah, there's the titillation this is an art movie, but it's like just depressing, like you said. Uh, to be fair, Magic Mike does have it does deliver the goods. It does. Let's say you're like, right. The dance That's sequences fair. are there. It still has Matthew McConaughey marching with like fireworks and a thong on and shit. Like that shit. And Channing Tatum, like, totally rips in that movie. But, like, yeah, it also turns into, like, an art house melodrama, but, like, the final third. And the theater was a little more quiet then. But, like, I don't know, man. Everybody seemed into it when I saw it. Different for me, for sure. (laughs) All right. Um, How about you, remake? Yeah. I actually have an idea for an urban cowboy remake that's modernized that I would love to do. And it's about... It's set in Austin, and it's more or less like the last Gillies on the planet. Because there is, mm. if you go up north, I can't remember the name of the bar, but I, I went with Carrie and her old roommate Sam and a friend of ours, and we got hammered, did karaoke, and danced all night. But I, it's like five different bars in one, but they have square dancing, they have... You know, the bull, they have everything. It's a, they have like the full honky tonk scene up there. But I, what I was thinking is the what would modern Gillies look like if you kept the milieu and like the clientele of guys who go there and maybe the clientele changes ever so much of like it's a bunch of regulars, working class dudes, and maybe even like a little smaller version of Gillies, but they all flock there either out of habit or after they get off of work or to get away from their wives or if they're younger, single guys, they're looking for something a little different than like the the women that they're getting that the, the tech boom and everything is kind of brought in, but it's about how would a modern Gillies both reckon with and survive gentrification and how, you know, these sorts of cities, especially, especially in Texas, Austin, Houston, Dallas, they've all been gentrified. Like they, that old school, uh, kind of cowboy mentality. Like it's still there every now and again, but you got to dig deep for it. You got to find like the local hangouts and stuff. Or, or, if, or it's there ironically. Or or it's there ironically too. Um, but like that would be my take on urban cowboys. Like what is the modern Gillies look like? How do those guys deal with like, cause maybe it becomes a refuge then from like, the, the life that now surrounds them and like this world that's kind of changed beyond their comprehension. And like, that's where they get their own kind of like slice of nostalgia and like real roots as a cowboy, even though maybe, and maybe that's the big reveal of the movie is that you invert 
the reveal to where in the beginning we learn, you know, Bud's not a cowboy, but he turns himself into a cowboy. Like, what if we find out that these cowboys, these shit kickers and stuff, what if that's the big reveal at the end is that we find out they were never cowboys all along. Like, this is just a fantasy to them as well. And the reality is actually crashing the doors in on their last refuge of this fantasy. So, like, I think that would be kind of cool. I don't know if it would work necessarily, but, like, I would I would definitely sit down with it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. But final question... Face melter. Yay? Nay? Um, probably not. Um, yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, this is so, so much of this stuff is so tonal and um, just not the kind of thing, again, where you show to someone like, oh my God, you're going to fucking shit. At the same time, again, that doesn't have anything to do with the quality because like, you know, you were like, hey, I think you're really going to like, you know, September 30, 1955. And it, it blew me away, not in a face melting way, but I was just like, totally, no. or even baby maker, like. Very few new Hollywood films are face melters. <laughs> it's not what you get. But the, the fact that I did not expect that kind of amazing character piece on like a, I think it was a Friday afternoon when I watched it. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like just hit me hard. Perfect you know? is a borderline face melter because of some of the more ridiculous elements. Yeah. Like I'm pretty sure if you watch that with an unsuspecting audience, they would be like, what is this? That's, that's probably the closest thing. Yeah. But and elements and elements of of um urban cowboy sure i think too they have moments of like whoa like her her dancing her riding the bull oh yeah in the, in the kind of sexual scene is like woof mm. oh and scott glenn's mesh uh, shirt that he yeah. enters in you know what they're god bless you james bridges to whatever afterlife you ascended to you know following your passing you got some uh one for you moments in for you as a gay man because Lord knows Scott Glenn in a mesh t-shirt <laughs> just walking in nothing but hard body that fucking first shot at Travolta everything involving Travolta and perfect or all of those like super buff dudes in the in that gym like Bridges had a gaze and he utilized it but like he never utilized it more than with that goddamn black black mesh t-shirt definitely not but hey man this has been a great uh, one for us episode, as it were. <laughs> Indeed. We expect the five of you that listen to this. <laughs> I hope that you really enjoyed it. Next time, we're going to get into some more, uh, let's say, accessible shenanigans. For you. <laughs> for you, the people. <laughs> but until then, you have to stay tuned to Secret Handshake.
What? I said I want pizza. Are you being for real or are you just saying it out loud like you do sometimes? I'm for real. <laughs> no, to be clear. I'm for real. <laughs> I mean I mean what I said. You wanna eat a box of tacos? <laughs> Never against it. 